I think most of us are probably old enough to remember back to 1972. In June of 1972, five men in business suits and surgical gloves were taken into custody. They had <clears throat> broken into the National Democratic Committee headquarters located in the posh Watergate Hotel. Washington Post reporters Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward broke the story later, October the 10th, 1972, I believe. By the following spring, the cover-up had begun to, well, come apart like a house of cards. Uh, the Watergate tapes came to light. Um, we found out that the cover-up went all the way to the White House. Uh, President Richard M. Nixon, well, it was his most colossal failure. Faced with the possibility of impeachment, he was forced to resign. Ladies and gentlemen, the Bible was written by more than 40 authors over a period of 1,500 years. And one of the most remarkable things about the Bible and the annals of literature is that there are no cover-ups. When the biblical writers speak of the, the, the heroes of Judaism and Christianity... They reveal these heroes, warts and all. There are no cover-ups. And when you read the scriptures, one of the things that you discover is that some of our most remarkable heroes suffered catastrophic failures in their lives. Adam and Eve rebel against God, plunging their progeny, that's us, into the misery of their transgression. Noah, the great man of faith, the, 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 the man who preached for 120 years, the man who built the lot, the ark, has a colossal failure with alcohol. Moses, the great lawgiver, murders a man. Abraham, the father of the faith, in a moment of cowardice, is willing to barter his wife to save his own skin. The biographies of Jacob and David and Solomon and a host of others are stained with colossal failures. This morning, I want us to look at a colossal failure of one of God's right-hand men, the Apostle Peter. If you brought your Bibles, please turn with me to Mark chapter 14, we're going to be looking this morning at verses 22 through 31. <clears throat> Mark 14, 22 to 31. The scripture says, and while they were eating, and this is the final meal, the Passover meal, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take it, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. 
And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to them, Lord, even though all may fall away, yet I will not. And Jesus said to him, Peter, truly I say to you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But Peter kept saying insistently, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they were all, all the disciples, saying the same thing also. It's Passover night. In a few hours at most, the mobs will be coming for Jesus. The beginning of the end is unfolding. And in these final hours, the powers of darkness are permitted to perpetrate the greatest act of of treachery ever enacted against the most perfectly righteous man who ever lived, Jesus. As you know, in a few minutes... He will be betrayed by one of his own, Judas Iscariot. He will be cursed and denied by another, the Apostle Peter. These are men whom Jesus has invested years of his life. Can you imagine? Loving them, teaching them, caring for them, discipling them. And yet they betray him. For the next few minutes, I want us to think about four lessons we can learn from the most colossal failure in Peter's life. Because I think they're important for us. Life lesson number one, God knows our failures in advance and he loves us in spite of our failures. If you look back at verse 27, you will see that Jesus' words must have shocked and confused the disciples because Jesus says to them, it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. You know, I think few things in life are as painful as being betrayed and abandoned by one of your friends. Several years ago, I had a friend who was teaching. Uh, he was a substitute teacher in a school in Colorado, and uh, he got there one day, and he was going through the roll, and one young boy stopped him when he called the name on the roll and said to him, please don't call me by that name. My daddy abandoned Mama and me when I was three years old. I, I don't want to be known by that name. I don't want to be identified with my daddy. King David in Psalm 55 speaks of being under attack. And it's bad enough to be under attack. But when you find that the guy who is attacking you is a close friend, the pain is compounded tenfold. David says, it's not an enemy who taunts me. I could bear that. Instead, it's you. It's my companion My close friend, we had sweet fellowship together as we walked in the house of God. I want you to think a minute. 
Imagine what it must have been like. Imagine the pain it must have brought Jesus to be betrayed and abandoned by his closest friends. Imagine the colossal failure the disciples suffer. Some of us here today have suffered colossal failure some point in a long life's journey. Perhaps it was an abortion you had as a teenager. Perhaps it was a business venture that collapsed because you were not a man of integrity. Perhaps... You made a colossal mess of parenting because you were so preoccupied with advancing your career at that stage of your life. And you've asked God a hundred times to forgive you for your failure, but you still feel guilty about it. Some of you simply turned your back on God for a period of your life. You took a walk on the wild side. And all these things you failed God. And now you wonder if God has put you on the shelf. You wonder if ever again that you can be in the very center of the good, pleasant, perfect will of God. Or if your life from this point on is consigned to plan B. Well, what I want you to do is look at these 12 guys. Jesus knows they'll run away. Jesus knows one is going to betray him. Jesus knows another is going to deny him and curse his name. And yet, Jesus loves them. He knew from the foundation of the world they were going to do this. And he still chose to love them in spite of what he knew they were going to do. I don't know what you suffered in your past. I don't know your colossal failure. But what I can say to you today is Jesus knew that was going to happen. And he still loved you. Such is the character of God. Our God, ladies and gentlemen, is a God uh, who loves us in spite of the fact that he knows everything about us. Our weaknesses. Our mess ups. Even our most colossal failures. And so what I want you to remember first of all this morning is that Jesus knew all this from before the foundation of the world and he still chose to love you. Lesson number two. We're not as strong as we think we are. No matter how far we have walked with Christ, no longer, no matter how long we have been a Christian, no matter how far we have progressed in Christian maturity, we need to understand we're not as strong as we think we are. If you look back to verse 40, uh, 29, you will notice that Peter vehemently disputes the notion that he is going to abandon Christ. Lord, even if all the rest of these cowards abandon you, I'll never abandon you. Even if I have to die with you, Lord, I will not deny you. I'm sure Peter means every 
single word. His intentions are good, but his estimates of his strength and resolve and loyalty are greatly exaggerated. This week I was reading Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the 19th century Baptist known as the Prince of uh, Preachers. And Mr. Spurgeon said this, listen, he said, The old nature is very strong, and they, we, have tried to curb and tame it, but it will not be subdued. You know, even after we are born again, after we come to Christ, we still find that the old residual sinful nature remains in us, does it not? We still fight a battle with those old sinful habits that don't seem to go away. And even those habits that we conquer have a way of springing back up like weeds down years, sometimes down the road. When we think we've gotten past that temptation, we are beyond that. That's the reason the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 12, if you think you're standing firm, be careful you do not fall. Um, I believe this. I believe that our most colossal failures often grow out of the fact that we overestimate our strengths. We think that we've gotten beyond this or that particular temptation in our lives. Back in the 1980s, I can remember uh, the president of a very well-known Christian organization was asked a very pointed question one day. He was asked this, if Satan were to blow you out of the water, how would he do it? That's a good question. How would he do it with you? The man responded, he said, well, I, I, I suppose there are several ways he could trip me up, but there's one area in which he would never trip me up, and that is in the area of sexual temptation. My relationship with my wife is simply too strong. Two years later, he's out of the ministry because of a sexual tryst. It greatly damages his testimony for Christ. It almost destroys his marriage. Let me give you a word of advice this morning. Now, I believe this. Anybody is capable of doing anything given the right circumstances. Never tell yourself... Well, that couldn't happen to me. I'm too strong. I'm too mature as a Christian. Any person is capable of doing anything given the right circumstances. Therefore, we need to take precautions. We need to guard our lives. We need to make sure we do not place ourselves in those situations where we will be tempted, where our integrity will be tested, where we might succumb to infidelity or something else. Does that make sense? If Peter had recognized his vulnerabilities, he would have been praying instead of sleeping in Gethsemane's garden that night. But he does sleep. 
And in a few minutes, he, this mighty fisherman, this leader of the twelve, this one who said, I, if, any, if, if everyone else denies you, I won't. He's cowering before a servant girl. He's cursing. He's swearing. I don't know that man. And in that moment, the rooster crows and Peter remembers Jesus' words to him and he goes out and he weeps. Some of us, Perhaps many of us have heard the rooster crow at some point in our past. Like Humpty Dumpty, we've had a great fall. We believe that we've made such a mess of our lives, no one, not even God, can put our lives back together again and make us whole. C.S. Lewis, the skeptic who taught at Oxford and Cambridge, the man who became such a great Christian writer in his book, The Screwtape Letter, says that Satan's strategy is to get Christians preoccupied with their failures. You see, in our lowest moment, Satan whispers in our ear, God will never forgive you now. You've blown it so badly. Your relationship with Jesus can never be the way it once was. You might as well throw in the towel because it's over. I cleaned up years ago the suicide of a good friend who believed that lie. And he took his life. I hope I never have to do that again. And if the kind of thoughts... Go around in your head that God can't love me now. God can't forgive me now. If those thoughts are thoughts that you entertain, you need to recognize their source. You need to understand their lies from the pit. They smell like smoke. They don't come from the Father. Don't believe the lies. Lesson three. God's grace. I love this part. God's grace is greater than our greatest failures. Did you get that? Luke's gospel records a very important statement from the lips of Jesus. It's something that you need to know. Jesus said to Peter in Luke chapter 20 verse 32, Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, Peter, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers at the most colossal failure in Peter's life what is Jesus doing is Jesus throwing rocks at Peter is Jesus heaping condemnation upon Peter is Jesus saying Peter you just climbed up on a shelf and made yourself useless to me your opportunities for ministry are over None of the above. Jesus says to Peter, Peter, I'm praying for you. And Peter, when you turn back to me, Peter, when you repent, Peter, when you turn around, strengthen your brothers. Jesus is praying for Peter. 
And you need to understand today, when you commit the most colossal failure of your life, Jesus is praying for you as well. He is our high priest. His ministry in heaven is a ministry of intercession. When we fail, we need to remember God's grace is greater than our failures. Listen to me. If you don't, if you don't remember anything else, remember this today. This statement. The purpose of the cross is to repair the irreparable. The purpose of the cross is to repair the irreparable. Dr. Erwin Lutzer who served many years as the president, as the pastor of Moody Memorial Church in Chicago, has written these words about God's grace. He says, many believers are in the dark as to how good God is and how completely Christ satisfied his requirements for all sin. God doesn't impose limits on forgiveness. The blood of Christ is never inadequate. It can cover all sins. If we do not fully understand or appreciate God's grace, there is a great danger. The danger, we will become discouraged. Guys, if you're here today and you've royally blown it, you need to know God's grace is greater than your greatest failures. Okay? Where sin abounds, grace superabounds. Lesson number four. The purpose of forgiveness is restoration. Let's go back again to Jesus' statement to Peter. Luke chapter 20, verse 32 Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, Peter, strengthen your brothers. Listen to me. Peter's failure is not fatal. And neither are your colossal failures fatal. The cross repairs the irreparable. Calvary covers it all. Again, Peter uh, is not told by Jesus, your ministry is finished. Instead, what is Peter told? He said, man, when you've turned, strengthen your brothers. God is waiting, ladies and gentlemen, for his children when we fail him, when we sin miserably, to turn back to him because he is the father of prodigal sons and daughters. He waits with open arms to receive us and to forgive us and to restore us. And when God forgives us, He expects us to get back in the saddle and ride for Jesus. Okay? Think about Peter. I'm certain Peter thought my life is finished. My ministry's over. And yet, who is the key man who preaches on the day of Pentecost? It's Peter. Peter preaches. Who's anointed by the Holy Spirit of God such that 3,000 men and women come to Christ on the day of Pentecost? And the New Testament church is born. 
It's Peter. Scholars tell us that Peter is the primary source behind the writing of Mark's gospel. Later in life, Peter will write two letters that become a fixture in the New Testament that God gave to us. And so, failure is never final because God loves to forgive and to restore. Jonah is one of the great missionary books of the Old Testament. Jonah, well, it's not a testament to Jonah's faithfulness. What is it? It's a testament to God's grace. You know the story. Jonah is told by God, Jonah, you go preach to the Ninevites. What does Jonah do? He rebels against God. He says, no, God, I, wanna, I have my own plan for my life. I'm going to go the other way. He takes a ticket. He boards an ocean liner. He takes a Mediterranean cruise in the opposite direction. God has to send a storm and a fish to get Jonah back on track. He is a colossal failure. What happens? Well, the sailors throw Jonah into the sea. He's swallowed by a fish. <laughs> and into the belly of the fish, he finally comes to his senses and he begins to pray. And his prayer is one of the greatest prayers in the Old Testament about grace. He says, when my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord. And my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs grace grace when Jonah turns to God in repentance he finds that God's grace is infinitely greater than his sin Jonah is restored to his ministry he preaches what occurs is probably one of the greater Revivals that occurs in the entire Old Testament because God is a God who delights in forgiving us and in restoring us and he doesn't want us to wallow in our failures he wants us once we're forgiven to get back in the saddle and ride for Jesus and serve Jesus all our lives how do we apply this this sermon today to our lives well I had an old mentor who used to say to me often Walt you need to preach the gospel to yourself every day what is the gospel Romans 8 1 says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus Psalm 103.12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions, our sins from us. Don't live, if you're a Christian, under Satan's condemnation a second longer. Preach the gospel to yourself every single day. As we close this morning, I want you to understand there is only one colossal failure that's final.
There is only one colossal failure that will land you in hell. What is that? That is the failure to receive God's grace and God's mercy and God's forgiveness that he's provided for us in Jesus. Now you need to understand this morning, I, I, I don't want to offend you, but you need to understand something that's very important. If you're here without Christ, you are under God's wrath because of your sin. But God has done something about that. He has sent His Son, the Lord Jesus, to bear the penalty for your sins. Isaiah 53, 6 says, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, Christ, the scapegoat, the Lamb of God, our sins. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, these words, God made him who had no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. John 1.12 says, But as, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Jesus says, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Where are you with Jesus today? If you don't know Christ, we're going to invite you Right now, as Wayne comes up, we're going to invite you to come down and give your life to Christ and place your faith in Him. Maybe you're here this morning and you've struggled with guilt for a very long time and you're tired of carrying that load of guilt and you'd like to come down and speak to one of our pastors and they will be down here and uh, pray with them. Perhaps you're here today and... You didn't know that there was going to be a visiting redneck preacher with a funny accent. And, but God has moved upon your heart and you'd like to join this church. I want you to know this is a wonderful body of believers. And they would love to have you be a part of their church family. And we're going to give you the opportunity to do that.